Welcome to Notre Dame Stories. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. The American Rescue Plan, the latest pandemic stimulus, was signed into law earlier this month, and it was billed as a means to slash poverty. We discussed that proposition with Jim Sullivan, economist and co-founder of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And you? Doing doing great. I actually just got back from uh, receiving my COVID vaccine shot, so we are we are doing well today. You had to wait till they put it under forty, huh? <laughs> I did. Congrats! I, you know, they're moving quick. I just got mine. Um, I'm a little over a week into it. Okay. Into my first shot, and so and. It's already been life-changing just in terms of, you know, being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. Just the, the mental thing, right, is, yeah, is a big... Well, uh, before, we, before we dive in, uh, I, should, I should tell you, um, you are the first repeat guest on this podcast. Um, wow. At, there, there's no trophy or any monetary <laughs> um, reward that goes with that, but I do appreciate the time. Oh, happy to do it. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, so the American Rescue Plan. Uh, last week, maybe a little before, uh, a lot of Americans started receiving um, deposits into their bank accounts. And I think for a lot of folks, um, the, the stimulus checks were the most tangible or most recognizable, most familiar aspect of this bill. But this is a huge piece of legislation. And I wonder if we could start uh, by maybe... Um, having you kind of list a couple of things, some of the big pieces that stood out to you uh, that is now law of the land. So this is a massive piece of legislation that addresses a lot of different areas. But you know, one big area that the American Rescue Plan Act addresses is family resources. So there are considerable dollars were transferred directly to or will be transferred directly to U.S. households. And there's really three primary components of that. Um, The most talked about are the stimulus payments. So uh, this time around, it's $1,400 a person. Uh, So a married couple uh, would get $2,800 and a married couple with two kids gets $5,600. And it's a one-time payment. Um, And, um, you know, that's on top of, you know, stimulus payments that we received last March and and uh, in, at the very beginning of this year. Um, the other component is uh, these supplements to unemployment insurance. And these are particularly important in that they target those who are not working, presumably because of the pandemic. And uh, typically, unemployment insurance provides covers about half of your pre-separation earnings. So if you get laid off because, because of COVID um, and you are making you know, $1,600 a month, uh, typical unemployment insurance would, would give you about $800 a month. And the supplements to unemployment insurance add an additional $300 a week. Uh, so that's a considerable boost, particularly for those at the bottom, bottom of the distribution. Um, and then the third key component, which is new this time around, is the child tax credit. And we've had the child tax credit as part of our tax system for a long time, uh, but there were some really important changes that occurred with the most recent legislation. One is that it was expanded. So now you get 
$3,000 for a child, 3,600 if that child's under six. Uh, and um, on top of that, they made it refundable, which means that if you have no tax liability, the federal government will write you a check. So if all the other tax credits and deductions uh, for a low earning household um, has, brings their tax liability to zero, and they have one child under six, they would get a check from the government of $3,600. Now, when you, when you piece this all together, this is a lot of resources in a short period of time, mm-hmm. just to kind of give you a sense of, of scale here. Um, if you take, take somebody who has lost their job, they're collecting unemployment insurance, and they get their stimulus payment next month, right? And, uh, if you, but they don't yet get the child tax credit. So if you, because those aren't coming until a little bit later, that person, uh, just in terms of government transfers, would get about $7,700 in the month of April, which alone puts them at three and a half times the poverty line hmm. for that month. Now, to be clear, that's temporary, but that's right. but for that month. Um, you go one month forward, they lose, they don't get the stimulus payment that month, but they do get the, um, they get the child tax credit payments. That they're they're going to pay half of them in advance on a monthly basis. That, so if you take the child tax credit, unemployment insurance, plus the supplement, um, that would get them to about a, about one and a quarter times the poverty line. So that th- those resources are, again, at least temporarily, lifting a lot of low-income households above the poverty line. Hmm. I want to come back to the, the child tax credit in a second. Um, but first, you know, Leo, the Lab for Economic Opportunity, you're in the business of assessing what works when it comes to, to poverty mitigation. A lot of folks have, have kind of uh, touted this piece of legislation as something that will slash poverty uh, in this country. And you walked me through a lot of the, the, the major provisions. I'm, I guess I, I would like to know, historically, um, has you know this kind of government spending worked in terms of um, poverty reduction? And, and do we know kind of for how long? A lot of these things are, are temporary, like you said, um, and I'm curious if we know, maybe beyond this current moment, what the the impact may be. Uh, I, I would just say you're in CNN and and other places with research that says you know the last stimulus had some some lasting impact, even if it's waned somewhat. So I'm curious what you make of this current legislation. Yeah. So. The- the long historical view doesn't help us much because we've never really done anything like this. Right? Mm. In the past, the federal government has provided some modest stimulus payments, but nothing on the order of what we've done recently. But if we just look at recent history, uh, we learn a lot about what these uh, transfers are doing in terms of in terms of its impact on poverty. And uh, you know, if you go back to April of last year, <clears throat> we have the largest one month decline in employment on record. And what happened to poverty? It went down. And it went down uh, between the, just before the pandemic, so February of last year uh, to June uh, by about 1.3 percentage points. In other words, more than 4 million individuals lifted out of poverty. Mm. Now, why was that the case? It's because of the original CARES Act stimulus payments and UI supplements and and the like. Um, so at least in the short run, those resources more than offset the, lo- the loss in earnings. And the, what happens to poverty after that 
really tracks quite closely the way the government continued to distribute resources. So for example, um, the unemployment supplements expired in July. And what we see every month in the latter half of, of 2020 is that poverty is rising. Hmm. In fact, the increase in poverty from the, in the second half of 2020 more than offsets the decline in poverty that we had early on as a result of the CARES Act. Um, and so that poverty today is above where it was before, before the pandemic. Um, the key point there is that what was happening to poverty was really driven by the government's response to the pandemic. Um, now, you asked a really important point about what's the, the long-term impact here, and that emphasizes um, the important point that these are short-term injections of resources, and um, as a result, they're only going to have a temporary fleeting effect on, on, on poverty. And um, what's, there's two ways to have a more permanent effect on poverty. One is to see a full recovery of the U.S. labor market. So we can see uh, if we see unemployment rates get back down to where they were in January of 2020, and we're still far from that. Um, uh, and uh, those hit hardest by the pandemic, which disproportionately are low wage earning workers, um, then, then we will start to see more stability in the poverty rate and, and, and uh, hopefully see it decline. Um, the other would be for the government resources of transfers to be more permanent. And so there's been some discussion around that in terms of things like the child, child tax credit. Right now, everything in the American Rescue Plan Act is uh, essentially temporary, right? So the, the unemployment insurance supplements are going to expire. The stimulus payments were one time. And the child tax credit uh, expansions um, are not permanent. Um, and so you would need to see those extended uh, in order for the, that kind of allocation of resources to have a permanent effect on poverty. The child tax credit is... It- it's interesting how they how they structured that. The monthly payments uh, portion of that, I believe, starting in July of this year, um, strikes me as something just totally new for this country. I'm curious if we've seen this in other parts of the world. Um, I, I think I heard there are some European nations that that do this. And what, if anything, we can derive from from the experience there. You're right. In fact, most Western European countries have some form of what they call a universal child benefit. And that is akin to, we heard a lot about uh, universal basic income uh, mm-hmm. from Andrew Yang's campaign uh, back in, in 2020. Um, a, a child uh, benefit would just focus the basic income to families with children to try try to really target the resources towards, towards children. Um, and uh, you, you know, we do, we can learn a lot from what's happened uh, in European countries. And, you know, the first, which almost happens by construction, is that poverty falls and poverty falls for uh, families with children. Um, the UK, for example, they've, they've reined in theirs a little bit, but they saw a dramatic decline in child poverty. Child poverty was cut in half between 1999 and 2009. Um, as a result of um, a child benefit that they that they um, had implemented there, um, across several European countries, we we see that the, this has an important effect um, on reducing reducing poverty. And we also learn even from studies in the United States where we've allocated income to low income families that these have other positive effects. So we know, for example, 
that increases in income at the bottom of the distribution result in better health outcomes for children, better test scores, higher educational attainment. Uh, there's lots of, of potential benefits um, that result from that. Um, and there are some, some important drawbacks, though, and it's worth noting um, that they're expensive, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about um, committing a lot of permanent resources uh, to the bottom uh, or to reallocating uh, dollars to the bottom of the income distribution. And, um, and the other thing is that there are, there are relevant concerns about the impact that guaranteeing some income could have on engagement with the labor market. And so the, much of the research we were seeing come out recently that suggests that um, it may not disincentivize work that much. So, for example, if you look at Canada, Canada had a, um, has a program um, that initially was given out about $100 a month. Uh, and they showed that it had little uh, negative effect on employment. And we recently, uh, the city of Stockton did a, a universal basic income experiment. And the evidence coming out of that experiment suggests that's $500 a month and suggested that, that the um, negative effects on employment uh, were not all that noticeable. Um, but there are still important concerns based on other research about if we were to give larger income guarantees like the current uh, mm -hmm. child tax credit, if that would have an impact on work or if over a longer period of time um, there might be some work disincentives. Mm. This starts to get into the realm of, of the political reality that something like this uh, takes on. But in your mind, you know, we have these payments f July through December, and then we have kind of next year's taxes. You get uh, the rest of the, the child tax credit. What do you think um, economists might need to see or folks who study this might need to see to make something like the universal, universal child benefit um, more permanent? Yeah, so, um, I mean, one thing in, in speaking a little bit to the politics is that, you know, Mitt Romney proposed a um, essentially a child uh, tax credit um, that um, would be permanent. Hmm. And uh, but he proposed it in the context of as a substitute for part of the social safety net. So let, let's get rid of our welfare program, TANF, and, and replace it with this. Um, but and there are some um, attractive features of that because uh, it's not conditional. Uh, you don't lose the benefit when you work. So when you give a child tax credit there, um, it's not until much higher incomes that you start to lose the value of the benefit. The more your the higher is your earnings in uh, the case of of many social safety net programs that target the very bottom. Um, as soon as they start working, they start to lose a lot of benefits and the effective marginal tax rate can be over 100% for some of these families, and which is a pretty strong work disincentive. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some features like that that uh, would address concerns that economists might have about the negative uh, incentives on employment. Um, but, you know, I think that there's also um, what's driving a lot of this in, in the political space is you know, what do we think is um, the desired outcome in terms of employment for mothers, particularly when kids are young? When we were reforming welfare and redesigning programs to encourage people to go back, or single mothers predominantly, to go back to work, it was in most circles kind of taken as given that work was a good thing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
is is that true for mothers of young children? Now, in many European countries, they would say, well, what we want to do is discourage work when the kids the kids are are, are young. And um, so I think a lot of the political debate hinges on, you know, what what do we really believe there? Do we believe that um, women of young children, particularly single moms, um, where there might not be an alternative uh, child care option, um, should they be working or um, when the kids are young or not? And that's going to drive a, a lot of the, the, the politics around this. Um, but in terms of what the economists should see, what would like to see, I think, um, you know, not too large of a, of a disincentive on work. Uh, it, it would would probably address some concerns that people have. Um, but there's also going to be a concern about the tax bill there that, that to mm. pay for this. And what drag does that have on the economy? Mm. That if we increase tax rates, does that lead to reduced economic growth, which then could, um, you know, ultimately hurt the people that you're trying, trying, trying to benefit. And so I think those are kind of the key uh, effects that, that uh, social scientists and economists in particular might be watching um, as we kind of, we're kind of, you know, we're going to run this experiment and, and <laughs> you can bet there'll be a lot of research to see, see what happens in the short run. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the recovery won't be more final or more permanent until we reach the employment level we had uh, prior to the pandemic. Do you think there were provisions in this bill that um, maybe could have done a little more to reach that level? Um, were there level levers that maybe were left unpulled by the government? So this is a unique recession compared mm-hmm. to compared to the past. Uh, it, and the most unique thing about it is that we know its cause better than we've known the cause of any other recession, right? It is because of the pandemic. And uh, as a result, we have a better um, you know, diagnosis plan here for how to treat it, which is that we should, uh, we should address the pandemic. If we can get uh, you know, the coronavirus cases uh, to be very low, to, to the health risks to be close to zero, um, that would go a long ways towards addressing the economic concerns that we have. Um, and so that's really good news, but it also means that, you know, the, the government, what the government can do in terms of changing unemployment rates, right? You can subsidize some inju- indus- uh, industry. So the airline industry has been clobbered um, and there are a lot of costs associated with them saying laying off a large number of workers or even some companies going bankrupt and there being some consolidation. There's, there, there are strong economic arguments for perhaps um, a smoothing over this, this economic shock by helping out certain industries like that. But ultimately, the key to uh, improving the labor market is to get to a point where businesses can get back to work, right? So where mm-hmm. restaurants, restaurants can be packed again and where people are comfortable flying and staying in the hotels. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of evidence that if we get to that point, um, the individuals are um, consumers and businesses are ready to get back to, to, to where things were. I mean, the stock market is already playing its hand. It, it certainly believes that, that things are going to look good going forward. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of evidence in terms of the way individuals are saving right now. Uh, with expectations that things are going to get better in the future that I think are quite promising. Hmm.
you know, an important point to note about fighting poverty through stimulus payments or even a permanent child tax credit um, is that it almost reduces poverty by definition. You give households income, their income goes up, and, and some households are going to be lifted over the poverty line. Um, but it doesn't do anything to address why are their incomes low in the first place. And if your goal is to have a sustained impact on uh, the economic well-being of those at the bottom of the distribution, it's going to be critically important to ask that question. Why are households uh, who struggle to make ends meet uh, having those, those struggles? And so there's a lot of work that, that Leo is doing to study different kinds of interventions that try to do just that, to try to um, address the obstacles that are preventing individuals and families from reaching self-sufficiency. And, um, you know, one of the, the kind of key takeaways from all this important lesson learned is that poverty is complicated, that hmm. um, no two individuals or families in poverty are facing the same issues. And as a result, a cookie cutter approach is not likely to solve those kinds of problems. For one family, it's, it's a health shock. Um, it's a child that's disabled, uh, it, whatever it might be. For another, it's, you know, their job for 20 years just got offshored and they no longer have marketable skills. And so for in each of those cases, it calls for um, a remedy that addresses the specific obstacles that they face. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing emerge are interventions that do just that. Um, they might collectively be called comprehensive case management programs. So Hmm. individuals um, who are struggling to make ends meet uh, will first, they'll meet with a case manager who will uh, work with them to identify what those obstacles are and then work with them to come up with a plan for how we're going to uh, address those obstacles. And then they serve as a coach and mentor through their journey out of poverty by helping them. If it's, you know, I go need to go get a certification so that my skills are marketable in today's labor market. Um, I'm going to help you go do, help you do that. In the meantime, how are we going to take cover childcare and uh, the issue that you have a, a one of your children is disabled. Uh, so trying to address all of those problems and challenges at once to help move individuals uh, to self-sufficiency. Um, and what Leo has been doing is working with, with several different organizations um, at evaluating the impacts of these programs. And we're starting to see, really promising evidence um, on outcomes like uh, employment and earnings in the future. And, um, you know, it's not just a Leo. There's actually um, studies all across the country in different contexts where we're starting to see this evidence emerge. Um, And I think it's an important complement to what's being done at the federal level Mm. um, to think about ways that we can uh, try to have a more permanent impact on those uh, who are living below the poverty line. Yeah, so these these big, broad strokes that the government paints with are fine, but to really uh, have a long-lasting impact, being there on the ground and helping families is is crucial. That's right. And, you know, we see it time and time again. Um, a, a good example is, you know, a ticket out of poverty would be to get a community college degree for many mm. uh, adults who don't have any college experience. Um, it turns out that we've seen, until recently, we've seen significant rises in enrollment rates in community college, but most students who enroll in community college never finish their degree. 
And so the, the you know, the will is there. Mm. The, you know, the interest in trying to uh, invest in skills to, to increase your earnings is there. Um, but life gets in the way, you know, students drop out because the, they have transportation problems or they uh, have to take care of a child or a sick parent. And these kinds of events uh, end up making it really difficult to kind of uh, follow through on, on, you know, these, these lofty goals of trying to acquire more skills. And so these kinds of interventions can really help in terms of, of um, you know, ushering individuals through this process that can be pretty, pretty complicated. Yeah. Jim Sullivan, thank you very much. Yeah, Andy, good, good to talk to you. It was fun. Anytime. I look forward to the third time we're on the show. <laughs> You've been listening to an episode of Notre Dame Stories, a collection of podcasts that showcases the life and work of the university. Our shows are produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour. <laughs>